Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damon Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, it's like my Elvis. It's my my Sinatra, my, my end-all and be-all when it comes to vocalists. It is, today on the show... Jerry A from Poison Idea. More on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also various social media outlets that I use at Left for Damien. If you use Facebook and you want to get in touch with the show, there's a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. You can find it at facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. If you would like to see the stuff that gets posted on that Facebook page and you don't use Facebook, like myself, you can do that over there on Tumblr. Turn it a punk. Oh no. Yeah, turn it a punk.tumblr.com. And if you'd like to support this show, the best way to do that is by going over to iTunes, writing a review for this podcast, rating it, or if you don't use iTunes, or even if you do use iTunes, tell all your friends. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Vans. They came on board over a year ago now and said, you know what, just keep doing what you're doing, and we just want to, uh, you know, give you a little bit of money so you don't have to do it out of your pocket. So that's what they did, and that's what I'm doing. So thank you very much to the fine folks at Vans for doing that. Uh, And, uh, oh yeah, also there on the feed for this podcast, you will see there's some other shows in the Turned Out a Punk family. There is, of course, Turned Out a Punk footnotes done by myself and my good buddy, and your good friend too, Chris O'Toole, where each week we dissect a Turn Out a Punk episode, and my gosh, we will have a lot to dissect with this one. Woo! There's also Oil and Flowers, which is hosted by Buddha Blaze, and I tag along, and that is one about cannabis, done by two medical cannabis users, Buddha and myself, and uh, that's it. That's that's really all the podcasts right now in the Turn Out a Punk family, but you'll find them in the various feeds for this podcast. I know a lot of you have written in and asked me, where are the playlists for the past two weeks of shows? Because as many of you know, I've been doing playlists for Turn Out a Punk episodes where I've been, you know, finding songs that come up in the episode and just, uh, you know, arranging them into a fine little mixtape. But there's no tape. But there's a mix involved. Uh, but that, unfortunately, has been something that I have not been able to do for the past two weeks. I will do it again. I will catch up. Autry's one will be done. And then I will move on and, and do uh, last week's and this week's. And we'll get back to it. But that is uh, 
uh, an apology for people that have been asking. Also, people that have sent in and inquired about T-shirts. Yes, we have some shirts uh, for sale. We're running low, uh, but keeps, you know, uh, I think we have a couple more in blue. So if you're looking for a blue shirt, let me know. And that's about it. And I'll let you know what I'm going to be sending those out. To all you people that have asked for those shirts, expect an email this week. I'm trying to trying to get back on to doing some stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on right now, you know? Who would have thought being unemployed was so busy? But it is. It is because you're, you're, you're trying to get employed again. Or you're trying to get other projects going again. But anyway, I'm not going to bore you with that. This is not about real life. This is about turned out a punk. And this week on the show... It's one of the greatest events to ever happen in my real life. Today on this show, we have Jerry A. from the band Poison Idea. Jerry A. is the vocalist that I aspire to sound like. He's the guy. Um, And yeah, he's on the show today. Poison Idea are that band. They're my favorite hardcore band of all time, I think. You know, if I were going to, you know, really get forced to kind of pick one, I don't know. I probably have to say Poison Idea. Uh, they're a band that consistently gives, you know, like even even more modern records, you know, like the back catalog is untouchable. They're that band. So this week on the show, I get a chance to kind of sit down and punish Jerry A, which is something I'm, you know, just so grateful I get to say. But I'm not going to punish you any longer. Before I let you go, though, I will remind people that I'm now, I don't think I've even announced this on this show yet, but Turned Out a Punk family, the amazing MVP, has invited me to join him and Alex Greenfield on his podcast as a kind of third chair on that show. And it is called the VIP Lounge. That also drops on Sunday nights. And you can check it out because that is one heck of a podcast. And I've been on the past three episodes and going to be on more, you know. And so that's more wrestling talk. There's a little bit of punk talk on there. There's definitely a lot of punk talk on there, actually, if I'm being realistic. But anyway, now sit back, relax, and enjoy Jerry A. of Poison Idea on Turned Out a Punk. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Damien. Well, no, as I was just telling you off air, um, you know, I've, I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of great guests on this show, but this is, this is one of the dream episodes for me. To me, you are uh, the Frank Sinatra when it comes to the vocal game that we both find ourselves in. Uh, you are also, though, one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to, about, to talking about punk. And so I can't wait to dive in, but I got to start this thing off the way I start them all off, which is... Jerry, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, you know, it was probably the Ramones. Probably the Ramones. It had to have been the Ramones because I, you know, I was listening to your um, podcast with Steve McDonald, and um, I didn't get into music when I was two and a half, like he did, yeah. <laughs> two years old. <laughs> you know, straight from the crib right to the to concert hall, but um. I was pretty young. I my my mother, well, my, my parents separated. My mother found out that she could bribe me with uh, the same thing, basically, just you know, give me records. Or she was actually taking me to concerts. I think I she took me to see Three Dog Night when I was like nine, and um, that kind of you know, I started going. I I found out how to get to this auditorium, and 
I could start buying tickets, you know, for five dollars, whatever, and seeing concerts. So um, I was into all sorts of different stuff. Probably Alice Cooper was my biggest, you know. Of course, I loved Alice Cooper and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like all little kids, you like things that are loud and big and stupid. So I loved Kiss when I was a child, <laughs> and I loved Kiss. And I heard the Ramones when I was before, right before I was in junior high, and heard the Ramones and um. I was like, wow, this is really good, you know. So I remember getting the first Ramones album at some store in Eugene, Oregon, and I was still a huge Kiss fan, so I didn't want to betray Kiss. And um, the new Kiss record was coming out, and I would go to the store every day, and it's like, is it out yet? And the guy's like, no, it's, you know, it's really, I'd see it in Cream or whatever. So I would go back every day, is it out? Is it out? And I'd have my money <laughs> set aside. And I believe it was Rock and Roll Over, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was after Destroyer, and and it was you know, and the Ramones were already out, already you know, conquering these hundreds of people, thousands of people. And I took, I got the record, and I went home, the Kiss record, and I listened to it, and I remember just sitting there and looking over at the Ramones record, and looking back at the <laughs> Kiss record, and looking at the Ramones, and looking back, and I just, in that moment, I just. I completely changed. I was just, I mean, my room was complete kiss. Everything was kiss. And I just said, you know, and I knew being a a young, you know, whatever, 12 year old kid, I was like, this is the future. This is, this stuff's old and horrible and makes no sense. I can't relate to it at all. And the Ramones were the, you know, that was it. I was Mm -hmm. like, and just like that, I just changed. So, you know, it it was that radical of switch, I guess, at that time where you kind of, did you feel like you had to pick a side or is that just like the the kiss just didn't make sense after the Ramones? It really was like getting hit, you know, with like lightning. I I heard the Ramones and they kind of scared me and they, (laughs) but I I liked them. I enjoyed them because it was the same thing. You know, it was cartoonish and loud and, and, you know, people, children and Americans can relate to that kind of stuff. (laughs) And. And I really was like, you know, so I appreciate it. But the, yeah, the kiss thing just didn't, it took me a long time to finally come back full circle and start listening to the first couple kiss records again. You know, I think mm-hmm. when the Melvin started doing it, I was like, well, what's, you know, I went through that already when I was eight, you know, what's the big <laughs> deal? And I listened to it again. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's kind of grungy. Now I see where the Seattle scenes stole their sound from, you know? So it was like. So, yeah, where'd you kind of go from the, you know, like obviously you've been hit by this lightning bolt. Where was your next step? And like, where were you kind of hearing about the Ramones? Was it from rock magazines or is it just from, it's in the, it's in the ether? Um, well, like I said, I, I grew up in a college town in Eugene, Oregon, and um, they had like rock scene, that mm-hmm. magazine. Mm-hmm. And they, and they, I mean, they would have stuff about just weird, you know, like, like the Mabuhe or something, you know, like, yeah. like negative trend and i was like i never (laughs) and so um then yeah once i was you know once i made the switch i just started getting everything like i remember i think the next single i bought maybe was like venus and the razor blades or something i was like what the hell is this you know this is bonka it's like (laughs) this is you know like dog food i'm like what this doesn't make sense i'm like this is horrible this is kind of like kiss (laughs) and and then, you know, something else would come down that, you know, like a Danger House single would make its way up here and I get that. And I was like, oh, this is more like it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, were there, yeah, and then I just start, yeah, everything. Were there were there kids around you that were also into this stuff or were you kind of on your own mission at this point? 
there were a couple a couple's kids, but um, you know, later I found out there were some people in Eugene, Oregon. There were people in Portland that were doing it. There were shows in mm-hmm. Portland at that time, mm-hmm. and like you know, but um, yeah, it was a real. You really had to. I mean, I lost friends. I lost my friends because they were, there were you know, you were either into sports, you're either like being a rocker and being like a you know a stoner guy, mm-hmm. or and to be like a punk was like way left field they you know i'm just lose yeah my friends would just like you know they would have nothing to do with me overnight you know i remember taking like you know an old work shirt and cutting it up and you know i cut my hair right away and people are like what are you doing you know they thought i was like insane but um yeah there weren't that many people um i'd have to come up to portland and see shows you know there was like like the ramones would play here in portland and i have to come up and see that so uh what was your first show? Like, had you been to other concerts, obviously, or, or sorry, had you been to other concerts prior to going to punk shows? Oh, yeah. I was, like I said, I was going to rock shows, you know, what was tons your first, and tons of rock. Yeah, what was your first rock show or some of the ones that stand out to you? Well, the first show I ever went to was Three Dog Night. That was when I was like nine. Sick. And then I just started, and I, you know, I saw the, you know, just like everything that would come through. I talked to people that were older than me later, like Tom Champion, mm-hmm. and he would say, you know, he would tell me that like Journey was like an opening band that would like, if there was somebody that bailed out, <laughs> it was like Journey that would that would take, I was like, yeah, I saw Journey like three times, you know, opening for this band, this band, and like ZZ Top, I remember seeing them a lot mm-hmm. back in the day, and you know, like just all sorts of obscure stuff and stuff that I, would go out of my way to see was like Bachman Turner Overdrive, you know, Blue Oyster Cult. Um, Did you see just, Alice Cooper? No, never saw Alice Cooper. He'd always play the big places, and I was like in Eugene, and he would come through and just, you know, I saw ELO. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty pretty amazing. You know, I saw like, I, I would go see everything that would yeah. come to the college, like, you know, like, you know, whatever, like, it's all like Funkadelic, like Paramount Funkadelic. And that was, you know, amazing. That was, that was like their spaceship one, the, where the, uh, you know, with Bootsy and stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that was amazing. Have, and as a kid too, that would have blown your mind. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of, you know, and I would just see all sorts of, I remember like, I don't, I've looked up before on like band websites to try to find, the the tour I saw because I, I remember seeing Fleetwood Mac you know at one time but I don't know what version of Fleetwood Mac that was and mm-hmm. I tried would would look and look and look and you know they were like this tour happened and then they would skip these major like I know they weren't on the road you know and just playing like every Saturday I know they were playing these pickup shows all over but these people don't list them and so yeah I just see all sorts of crazy stuff. I saw like you know Edgar and Johnny Winters a couple times I remember like Rick Derringer, just all that just stuff that was around you know what was and then I guess what was your first punk show then and like what was that experience like versus you know some of these big rock shows that you're going to um probably when I first moved to portland i it was like in seventy eight I came up here and saw um like the Wipers first show, the very first show in Portland. They, they were like opening for a uh, band ice nine that put out some oh, singles. Yeah. Probably, yeah. They were, they were, ice nine was like my favorite Portland band. Cause they could play. They were really good. That single's incredible. And, uh, yeah. And people, the, the, 
And it's funny because I, I went to that show and, you know, I was pretty young. I was like 15 and um, people didn't really, they were, I found out that punk rock was clicky too. And there were snobs and, you know, and, and like, you know, just like all, like all social cliques, you know, they weren't like an accepting family right away. And um, they didn't really like the wipers either because the wipers were, you know, they would do like Yardbird songs and stuff and just rock the shit out of them. And, but they were really, really good. And, uh, that was yeah. That was my first. Then once that that floodgate was open, I went to like every show I'd see, you know, be comfortable. So really, so the Wipers eventually developed like a, a big local kind of fan base, or was it always like you know an odd duck kind of band? Well, um, it, it only took like two or three shows for the Wipers. People knew that they could play, and um, you know, like like punk rock it. Like my band that played, we didn't really know how to play. And even even the germs, they, they say that. You know, the germs said we didn't know how to play. But um, you can tell Pat Smear knew how to play. I mean, he played the beginning of Roundabout on that song. And that's a hard lick to play, you know? Yeah. He knew. They, they knew how to play. So, um, but the Wipers knew how to play, too. They, they, you know, they did know how to play. And so they were, they had no problem, like, just taking taking the crown from whoever in Portland, and um, but when they played, you know, they played that Elks Lodge thing in Los Angeles mm-hmm. with the the Lodge riot, um, the Wipers did with the Go Go's and I forgot who else, but they went down there, and the only review I ever read of them, a lot of people just say, like, I think there's a flyer out, it says all the bands, you know, Alley Cats, Go Go's, this this, and and some other band at the bottom of the flyer it says and some other band, you know, and then. And the only review I ever read of that show where they talk about the wipers, they go, they were like talking about the Elks Lodge riot. And they said, and this happened. And this one band came up, the wipers, they had the weirdest haircuts I've ever seen before. And that's how they described <laughs> the set. You know, that was, that was them describing the, the, the music. They go, and then the wipers from Portland, Oregon, they had the weirdest haircuts I've ever seen before. And then next, the next band, I was like, that's it. You know, that's how you describe the band. <laughs> It's so funny because, like, you play the Wipers now for just about anybody and it it clicks right away. It's like, oh, yeah, this band's amazing. And, like, that's even people that aren't into punk, like, just normal people. But, you know, like, it's it's funny to hear at the time how, you know, it seems like it was over a lot of people's heads. Well, yeah, like, you know, like Ice Nine and and the band, the Portland Fix and bands like that, they were, you know, they were kind of regimented punk bands. They would Mm -hmm. throw in you know, the dead boys cover or the sex pistols cover or whatever. And the wipers were like more like rock and, um, they were more, uh, universal. They were a good band. They were, you know, you can still, they, they held up. You can still listen to that stuff today. And it just like, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, not a time. It doesn't sound dated and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, Absolutely. So where did you, where were you buying records at this time? What were the stores or were you ma- having to mail order this stuff or? Well, Eugene, there was, you know, there were like good record stores in Eugene and Portland had like, when I moved up here, Portland had um, like a couple punk record stores. There was a, the guy who did the radio show on um, the, the uh, radio thing here, the community radio was Joe Carducci who wrote that book. Yeah. Um, you know, and he would play, he would get like rough trade stuff and, um, all sorts of crazy, you know, like 
whatever when the nor- you know the f- first normal single mm-hmm. to uh, you know that Robert Rantall stuff, um, just all sorts of all the all the English stuff, and he would get it and play it, you know, just like um, what's that one? Uh, Good Missionaries, uh, Mark Perry, yeah, all that, all that, kind of, yeah, and and I would just I'd, I'd record the stuff on my mother's like you know because little stereo that had the radio and the cassette player on it. So I'd record everything on cassette. Then I'd have the cassettes and I'd listen to them, you know, over and over. And he had a show every week. So I'd have these like, you know, 90 minute tapes of these, you know, just great stuff. And, um, and he had a store. It was actually like downtown. You go to a uh, building and then go upstairs like four floors. And it was like an office room. And he just had like a table with like a couple crates of records in this store. <laughs> In this office, but he had great stuff. He had you know stuff that you know like tooth and nail and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, all sort of just crazy stuff. And so I would, I I usually bought the stuff that I heard on the radio that I really liked, like you know the first Swell Maps record. And, and he's like, you know, what's this kid doing buying Swell Maps stuff? <laughs> you know, he should be buying like you know Ramones or something. And then I was like, oh, like, so this is really good. You know, I was like, and I bring it over to my friend's house, and they were like, that's. Yeah, that's great. That's even for a punk rocker. That sounds weird. You know? Yeah. Well, that's like all the records you're mentioning too. Are like that's all like you know the proto DIY stuff, the stuff that would go on to become you know the foundation of I guess like industrial even in some cases or, or you know all this sort of stuff. It, when were you like into the more sort of like meat and potatoes hardcore stuff that was coming out, or are your tastes leaning sort of this left of field stuff? Well, you know there was it was funny because. Until the the hardcore thing made the resurgence, you know, with Black Flag, and I mean the Germs were always around. And yeah. I think that you know, like Middle Class and the Germs were the first hardcore bands. But I actually like sold my leather jacket, you know, like <laughs> like in '79. <laughs> I was like, I, and I started like getting into like the contortions and stuff and, mm-hmm. and all that crazy stuff. And I was actually wearing like you know, kind of like like suity, you know, pointy shoes and stuff. And I was still a teenager, but. Um, then when the hardcore thing came back around, I had to go out and find a new leather jacket again. <laughs> uh, the uniform, you know? Where, but, where, um, where did you first hear the germs? Do you remember? Probably on Joe Carducci's radio show. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Um, the band that became the Neo Boys mm-hmm. in Portland, the uh, Formica and the Bitches, I don't think they ever put anything out, but they were like the first the lineup who like th- two of the people from that band went on to t- start the Neo boys, but they, in their live set, they were really, really kind of a uh, shambolic and they would cover forming. They do forming on their, you know, their live set. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm, yeah, I remember hearing that and going, that's horrible. That's a horrible <laughs> song. <laughs> that's a germ song. And I was like, Oh, well, I gotta check them out. So, uh, yeah. And then Joe Carducci would play, you know, I've since like talked to Joe Carducci and, and, told him i was like you know wow you totally like guided me you you know you're like my my where to go guy you know yeah and he's like you know, leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> don't bother me <laughs> uh well it's nice to know that he appreciates the impact he had <laughs> oh yeah he had great taste he had great taste what, you know? it's awesome that his record store also sounds exactly like a proto kind of japanese record store you know like a little tiny yeah, office <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was with a, you know a couple posters on the wall and, yeah. and like a table, and him sitting there doing some you know 
typewriter thing or whatever and just <laughs> you know you'd have to come in there and, like say the password at the door or whatever and come in and well, it was like a secret society pretty much yeah and then and then this guy <clears throat> excuse me this guy who uh would go to shows named thor Lindsay. he would do the same thing that a lot of people do now like distributors they would he just set up a little box at a table mm-hmm. and sell his records he'd have and then he started a i think he started the first punk store in portland singles going steady and that was that was after joe moved and actually it was like joe joe sing was like renaissance records i think it was called and um because portland was putting out people were putting out like um parasites of the western world yeah and uh you know the wipers and there's like there was some yeah, yeah, there was some, you know, the Ice Nine single. So, yeah, so people were, yeah. yeah. So, so there were like a few independent records coming out of Portland, and we still have record, like vinyl record stores here that, you know, were there back in those days. And well, they, well, funny, cause yeah, you mentioned but, singles going to steady, and like that's is that I guess that was where Pete Janess would get the name for his singles going steady years later, right? Yeah, I don't know if he. Well, yeah, yeah, but I don't know if he if he just like Thor gave it to him because you know thor then started that uh label tk records later that had like the dandy warhols and ever cleared all that stuff yeah yeah, yeah kind of yeah it was a <laughs> it's funny portland seems, portland seems to get overlooked as like uh you know like the importance but like you know as we're talking about it here it's like got to be one of the first american cities you know, certainly of its size to have that kind of huge punk scene where they're putting out records that, that quickly. Yeah. It's, you know, it's kind of good like that, that it's never been completely co-opted like Seattle had, you know, when people were up there signing everything that mm-hmm. was, had flannel, they had flannel on. And, um, you know, we've never really had that, but we had the hipster Portlandia, whatever, uh, <laughs> yep. way here and so so it's weird going to a show you know whenever seeing a band that you really like and the place is completely packed you know with 1200 people and not knowing one person in there you know yeah yeah it's kind of, kind of strange but but that's the way you know that's progress and that's the way it goes so well it's kind of funny you mentioned like the hipster <laughs> portland thing it's it's almost like tragedy started that like tragedy was the lichen of that like i remember when tragedy moved from memphis to portland and, uh, you know, then it was like the punk mecca and all the punks started moving. Obviously you guys were there. So there was already the, the lineage of, of the great hardcore band there. But like when tragedy moved there, it was like all these punks from across America were like, Oh, let's move. Let's go to Portland. Let's do that. And it's, it's like, that's the foundation for, uh, the Portlandia. Well, at that time, you know, it was, you could still live here relatively cheap and stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, going through, around, the states and stuff you, you see detroit now and you're like wow i this is incredible i i like to live in this house for 200 dollars a month in a mansion you know yeah yeah but that's the way but portland was like that at that time and, and you could get houses and there was actual work here unlike detroit mm-hmm. you could you know find jobs and stuff what were the uh what was the scene like back then like sort of i mean the obvious prior to like i mean like that ice nine kind of scene what were like the people going to the shows was it an artier scene was it like more kind of like a tough you know like la kind of or hardcore scene or what what was the vibe like 
it was kind of it was pretty arty, but pretty um, you know rock and roll like with Fred Cole's stuff. You oh, know, he yeah. had a guitar store. Yeah, so he had he had a guitar store right downtown, and that was kind of the hangout for a lot of the musicians and the punks and stuff. And um, but it was really it was really open and really uh, female friendly, gay friendly, all that it was like everybody and and the music reflected that too and it was a really diverse and crazy artistic scene and stuff and um you know and it wasn't really into tribes you'd have a show with four bands and they'd all be completely different one band would have you know saxophones and weird keyboard like smegma or something and then the next band would be like wipers and then the next band would be like a rockabilly band and you know and we had like weird quasi mod bands and stuff like that but then, like I said, when the, the hardcore thing started, that really uh, – it was a younger thing. Like like Tom said in the documentary, and it was a kind of a stupider thing. But it just uh, kind of – well, you just see all these people that would not go to those shows. Yeah. <laughs> that happening in L.A., New York. Like it seems like, like hardcore, you know, was – a real jumping off point for some people. And it seems like the, the vibes changed in a lot of these shows, as you're saying. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that, you know, Portland kept with the fads. <laughs> it was on, it was on point with, uh, the trends at that point. Uh, you mentioned Frank Cole, where did the rats, uh, were they like a very popular band at this point? Um, yeah, yeah, they were, you know, Fred's always, you know, everything, he, it's really weird. It's like, it's like um, Tom, my guitar player, who was around. I, you, you just, you just always expect him to be around forever. And I always expected the Rats and Dead Moon and Fred and those people to always be here. And yeah. you don't like to think about, you know, immortality and stuff. But when it kind of slaps you in the face and, um, you know, it shakes you of, you know, out of your complacency and just like this is reality. This is what's going on. You're, you're like, oh, this, this sucks. Yeah. You know, no wonder I drink. No wonder I yeah. take drugs. You know, I want to try get away from this stuff. But um, yeah, Fred, you, Fred was always a, a anchor. You know, a foundation of Portland stuff, and um, he was was great. Everything he, you know, I saw, I saw the bands he did before. He was in the Rats, like you know, King B and uh, Zap Spangler was kind of a weird, this weird power trio type thing with a kind of a rock power trio. Oh, and, awesome. Um, what year would that be? Yeah. Uh, that was like 78. Okay. 78, 79, I think. But um, so, yeah, he's always, you know, they were, yeah, it's just, it's so strange that, you know, that you'll, that, that won't be, I guess it's, you know, like I say, it's um, times, times mm-hmm. change and things change and everything, you know, but uh, yeah. This would have been before your time, but did you ever see Beauregard? Like that band that Greg's the wrestler who had a, a thing out of Portland that Greg Sage, it's like the first thing he played on. Um, yeah. It's like 71, right? Or something. So it's probably before you were. Yeah. Tom knew who he was. Tom's was familiar with Beauregard and stuff. Okay. I was, you know, like when I, I lived in Eugene, when I was growing up, when I was like, you know, that's where I went to grade school and stuff. And I was into the, um, Northwest wrestling stuff here, you know, in the Northwest, like, you know, this was the first place, like when Jimmy Snuka came out here and, uh, Piper, you know, 
Yeah, Roddy Piper and all those people. And um, I don't know if you, I don't know if uh, Bull Ramis ever went up. I've heard of that around name, that, but but only he was yeah, yeah. And he was a big Native American guy, and he was like the the villain, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was like in junior high, me and my my rocker. This is before <laughs> I got into the Ramones when I was like a long haired hoodlum. And uh, we would go see Friday night. We would go to the fairgrounds in Eugene and watch wrestling and pay whatever four bucks to see the wrestling. And um, and I, I sold pot too. I was selling pot in school and stuff. And so I always had a lot of pot. And I always had a lot of friends for some reason too. I don't know why, but uh, dude, selling pot. I, you yeah. sound like the coolest. You're into wrestling. You're selling <laughs> weed, and you're into punk. You would have been my best bud. Like I, like dude, yeah. <laughs> you would have been going to wrestling with me. I would have been. <laughs> Yeah, but we were we were hanging out before the wrestling one one time, and uh, we were standing there up on the bleachers outside or in the fairgrounds, and Bull Ramis comes walking down, and he's looking up at us, and he smells we're smoking pot. He's like, "What are you kids doing up there?" Like that, <laughs> we're just like we all just freeze, and he comes walking up like he's a cop or something, and we just freeze, and he's like, "What are you doing up here?" We're like, "We're getting stoned." He's like, "Can I have some?" Like <laughs> we're like, "Sure." So we got stoned with Bull Ramis, and we were so happy, you know, and then. And then, you know, when we go inside later, we're just like, you know, yeah, Bull Ramis is our friend. And we go over to the bad section. And he's like, get away from me, you little kids. <laughs> get the fuck away from me. Like, he looked at And he's also always saying stuff about, like, uh, really racist stuff about white people, too. And it was hilarious. He's like, get away from me, you little white bastards. <laughs> you know? So we loved it. We were like, yeah, right on, Bull Ramis. You're cool, you know? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Where did you uh... – so I, I guess back to the music stuff. So you, when you moved to Portland, had you been? Did you do a band in Eugene, at all? No, I had a friend that. Um, it's weird that um, we that I got into like the industrial stuff, yeah. like Throbbing Gristle, and stuff, because because I was I had a bass that my friend stole from a church. He he's ripped it. <laughs> he bucked into a church. And stole like all the equipment. They had like a band in the church. And he ripped off all the equipment. So he gave me this bass, and I didn't know how to play it. And I think I broke a string on it. And I just left it off and just would play. And we would we would record this stuff on these cassette players and make like weird industrial noise and just like bang on stuff and scream and have all these weird songs. And if I had the tapes now, it would sound like you know some crazy, like you know, kind of like Suck Dog or something, you know. But uh. That was the stuff that I, I had. And so when I moved to Portland, like later, I was like, oh, yeah, I've been in a band before. You know, I kind of just like totally lied. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I played in a band in Eugene. It was not really a band. It was just like a bunch of kids making noise. So, <laughs> what, like, um, and did and have you heard any of these tapes ever since? Like, I guess, like you're saying, it sounds like Suck Dog was Smegma. I have Smegma's going at this point, right? Yeah, well, Smegma was going in Pasadena when I was doing that in Eugene, but I, I moved up here to Portland, and um, that was one of the first shows I saw with Smegma, and I was like, these guys are really cool. This is, sounds kind of like the stuff I was, but they were they could play. They yeah. either, I mean, they could like, you know, beef hard or like like freeform jazz or something if they wanted to, and um, so I was like, oh, I got to be in your band, and they're like, you know, get away from me, little kid. <laughs> you know? Always, always comes back to that. Being a little kid, you always have people like, you know, go away, you bother me. But uh, I, I bugged them long enough, and they just put out this single flashcards, mm-hmm. and uh, and it actually has a bass on it, a one one note bass riff all the way through the song. I think like an A, <clears throat> and um, their bass player quit, and so I saw him one night at a show, and they're like, yeah, our bass player just quit. Like, come over and 
you know, try out. <laughs> I went over and uh, I went over and played like a crass song. I think off uh, the first crass record, the feeding of five thousand yeah. or fifty thousand. I played I played the yeah, do they owe us a living? And they're like, well, you know how to play bass, sure. You know, you can play one note. So that's your that's that your contribution to the Smegma discography, the one note. Oh, I played on that live album. Yeah, live album too. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, I, when you get up to Portland, what was did Poison Idea is the first thing you do, right? Like up there, or did you do another band before that? Yeah, I was in a couple. You know, I was in a couple bands before that. I was in one band called the Kinetics, and they were kind of a more abstract, uh, arty kind of in a way, but more kind of like you know, like the the rough trade stuff, kind of like the au pairs or something. But um, Sage, actually, we did our last session on the radio and Sage produced it. And those tapes are around somewhere. I have no idea where those are at. Yeah, there's a couple bands, uh, you know, I played in. And then, and then um, like I say, the kids started getting into it. And all of a sudden, there were kids my age that knew how to play, you know, that knew. And all of a sudden, so that's when Poison Ideas started. We were all like kids. Yeah. And was it like immediate, like you talked about the hardcore thing starting up again and was it kind of immediate, like this arrival of these new kids or is that something that happens over a period of time? Um, the hardcore thing might've been out. I don't think we, anybody had the black flag single yet or like, you know, I mean, I had yes or the, uh, yeah, yes, LA and, and, uh, the, what do you call it? The, uh, tooth and nail. But, um, I mean like D I met Dean and Glenn and they were into like, like the damned mm-hmm. and, and the, and the, you know, the stuff they were playing with, like these other people were, was like users menace, all the, all the English first wave. Or the, would that be the second wave of hardcore like menace and the users? Yeah. The, I'd say, you know, like, yes. Or like first wave of, you know, users, aren't they kind of like more like first wave? They were on raw records, but anyway, yeah. first or second wave, whatever. But yeah, I know what you're saying. Like that British hardcore stuff. Yeah. They were like in more, you know, they, like I said, Dean had all the damn stuff and they were playing that kind of stuff, but they also knew how to play a little bit of, you know, they kind of were like Judas priest and stuff like that too. So they knew how to, an ACDC. Mm-hmm. So they knew how to, play. so they knew how to play. Where were the, uh, was DOA making their way down at all uh, to to Portland, or were they a few years away from doing that? No, they um, – see, that was the one cool thing is like DOA would always come down to California, and yeah. they would have to go right through Seattle and here, and they would get pickup shows here. And they were playing here as early as like 78. They were playing, you know – like the first time they went down to San Francisco, they played here. They put, DOA played here. In the old days, DOA played here probably like six or seven times. Now, when the Melvins were on the show, they broke my heart and had nothing but terrible things to say about Canadian icons, DOA. But were you a fan of DOA? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I would, you know, it's weird because like I said, I moved up here from Eugene, Oregon, which is like a hundred miles South of here. Yeah. And there was a time when, um, right in like the early eighties when, um, there was no no clubs in Portland. Something was happening. I think I don't know what was going on, but bands would come through and they would play Eugene and they wouldn't play Portland. And I'd have to go down there to see like the Pointed Sticks or the Subhumans 
or you know whoever were going down to California and they would stop in Eugene, but they wouldn't stop in Portland. So I would hitchhike down there and you know stay with my old friends and <laughs> see these bands. I fucking love the Subhumans too. They're one of my all-time favorite bands. Yeah, I heard one of your podcasts and uh, there was an argument about the English Subhumans <laughs> yeah. and the Canadian Subhumans. Where do you fall on that well, argument? I, well, I like the English Subhumans, but come on, really? The fucking Canadian Subhumans were, you know, somebody somebody said, he goes, oh yeah, two great, two good songs. And that, that's bullshit. That first, <laughs> everything, that, that album of theirs is fantastic. Every song on that is great. That it was, incorrect thought. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Thank you. This is why you're the greatest of all time for, for so many reasons. <laughs> it was Fat Mike that had that ill-informed opinion. And uh, yes, you've just put him in his place with that. You're right. Exactly. Um, so where when you kind of, when this sort of new scene starts going, Poison Idea, you know, is playing, like how long is it until you guys have the first single? Um... Well, we demoed with our first bass player. That's kind of how... And that's the Darby Crash Rides Again stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was about a year into it, year and a half, when we, you know... Because we we played for about a year. We played actually like nine months as a four-piece with with Chris Tense, Glenn, Dean, and me. And those we were all like kids. And Tom was in another band, Pig Champion. Imperial Spades. Yeah, yeah. And then he kind of, we kind of formed band, we merged, and um, Tom was our guitar player, and that's when we kind of got professional, you know. So, yeah. We knew how to play, and we were playing, like, we were, our songs were all, like, 40-second songs, like, really fast songs, and we would cover, you know, like, whatever whatever single we would get that week that was really, really, really liked, like, the Circle Jerks album would come out. So we'd cover red tape, you know, right away. <laughs> or we got the mentally we got the mentally ill single, and we'd cover Gacy's place. Like you know, we were like a jukebox. We go to a show, and we play like <laughs> play like seven of our seven originals and seven punk covers that were just like brand new that just came out. And uh, you know, and then Tom was in a band too, and they were doing covers too. And then we joined with Tom and started writing more original songs. So. Uh, yeah, it was just a couple of years after we started, and then we did uh, Pick Your King. Did did one of your did sort of like was the these bands you're playing before? Were you guys playing with like Ice Nine and the Rats, or like were you guys having to play your own shows? Like where did you guys fit in with the older scene? Yeah, they you know it was really cool. Um, this guy who was doing running this uh, alternative artist association in Portland, Stan, he put out this book called All Ages. And I didn't, at the time, I took it all for granted because, for one thing, I could sneak into bars even though I was like 16. I could go into bars in Portland. And I was living by myself. I was, you know, here living on the streets or in a house, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I could, uh, I could drink in bars when I was like 16. So um, I didn't care about. I could go see like you know 999 or the Dickies or whoever came up here, and. Uh, I didn't really care about the all ages thing, even though I was all underage. But then um, I realized when he put out this book in the last year that he they were really committed and driven to having all ages shows. They wouldn't have shows unless it was all ages. He was really – I mean he started this club that was a an arts gallery and a practice room for other bands and it had a big stage and we would have shows there. I think the first one of the first one was like the mentors when they were still living in Seattle. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> yeah, this was a long time ago. Wow. And um, what did they sound really, like at that point? Were they doing the same sort of shtick? Yeah, but they're really bad. They're, you know, they're <laughs> no, worse. even worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's actually there's a videotape of them. Some the guy from Smegma. Oh, I got to look at that. I got to find that <laughs> for yeah, purely for just uh, cure, you know, morbid curiosity's sake. I mean, because I'm not expecting, you know, any great hidden gems on those songs. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> but but that was yeah. So you know he that was our the scene was an all ages scene, mm-hmm. and he we he it was incredible that he would keep that you know for so long that you know values for so long it was all ages or nothing and yeah. he really supported it and uh yeah it was t- it wasn't until years later when like these club like urban noise when when there was money to be made all of a sudden you know because before it was just like a, a thing of love and uh once you know like once black flag came through here like four or five times and i think the first time they came through with henry that was like the maybe the fifth time because we, we, they came here with Ron once, and they came here with Des like three times, and then when they came here with Henry, then all of a sudden they could make money, mm-hmm. and that's when the club started having like a punk rock club. Where you know, you had to be over eighteen, and it was money and ID and all this stuff. And before that, it was all just kind of casual, and uh, there wasn't money <laughs> involved. Yeah. I think money changes everything, like Cindy Lauper says. <laughs> <laughs> Where were your influences kind of coming from? Like you mentioned, you know, Gacy's place, you know, and, and stuff like that, because like you guys, that sound that you have is just so distinct and it's like, it's just so much more powerful than what anyone else is doing. Like where, where is that coming from? Like, what are the influences you think for you guys early on that gave you the sound that like so many bands to this day try and ape? Uh, I don't know. I think I think we didn't have a lot to say, but what we did have to say, we wanted to say it really loud and really fast and jam as much as you could in there. If you only had 30 seconds, you wanted to make it as big as explosion as possible mm-hmm. and just, you know, kind of like discharge. Yeah. And I don't even know if we had the first discharge single by then, but I know, you know, we did, you know, the like like I said the Circle Jerks album came out and they had like a 30 second song on it so the last song red tape so that was the one that was that song like wow let's write you know 20 songs like this you know but let's turn it up let's be like motorhead let's turn it up louder and uh you know i love the germs i love darby's lyrics and let's uh jam all this stuff in there let's make this like a Kind of the way I um, send off packages today. They're just like bulging and ready to explode. You know? <laughs> like duct taping them, sending them off, you know. And so uh, that's the way these songs were. Yeah. And I guess that's it. Like that motorhead, it's that motorhead power with that sort of punk rock furiosity. Like, you know, like it's like it's discharge crossed with motorhead, but like with, you know, Darby Crash lyrics. It's like, you know, kind of it's like this perfect mix. But like it's like right there at the beginning for you guys too. Like, do you guys know that like oh, we got this, we got this down? <laughs> Were there like other attempts at different sounds, or was it just like we just kind of like you know, like faded? You, you know, we we that's the way we played, and that's what came natural. And nobody told us we had down people. You know, if we, there were bands in Portland that were popular, but they were doing you know 
like clash covers and stuff and they were you know doing like throwing some reggae stuff in there yeah and they were being you know slow and they could play bars and they could make a living they could play you know four sets at, at a weekend and um there was no way we could do that there was you know that's what we knew how to do and yeah people didn't like us you know in portland like the kids liked us we had our, our you know friends that all loved us and hung out with us and they dug it because it was you know like i say like explosions and but um yeah the people i don't know there's a lot of people still don't like us that's fine you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, because there's a lot of people that do, <laughs> you know, there's like, you know, like, I obviously I want to keep going in a linear fashion, but there's just so much stuff that I've always wanted to ask you about, but like specifically Japanese hardcore and, uh, you know, like there's, uh, there's like a, uh, like, it, it seems like that's the, that's like the spiritual home, like gauze, like, you know, like there's, this is the place where it seems like this stuff had the same ferocity that you guys had. What was your take when you first heard it, and who were the first bands you kind of heard from that scene? Um, Japanese, probably the first Japanese band. I'd have to probably say the Stalin, maybe. Mm-hmm. It, well, I know the first Japanese band I heard was the Plastics, but they sound yeah. like New Wave. Yeah, yeah exactly. like New Wave. But um, they were on like, SCTV, yeah, when, right? Were they? I think they were on an episode of SCTV. They're definitely they, they had some weird American or Canadian, I should say, TV appearance back then. I think I remember that. I think I do remember that. Yeah, that was crazy. But yeah, the, the, the Japanese must be the people who make that must um, have the same diet as we do and listen to the same. You know, <laughs> they 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 like the same stuff. You know, they they like. You know, they take the parts of the heavy metal and the parts of the, you know, whatever the sonic, the the bombs and the and the ferociousness and stuff. And that's what I don't think. You know, we didn't ape them, and they didn't take nothing from us. Mm-hmm. We just do. We were doing it at the same time, mm-hmm. and you know, there is some of that Japanese stuff is just so you know, head peeling. It just like just blows you away, and it's like, how do they come up with this? You know, and it's like, yeah, they definitely. You know what they? We were almost a little more melodic and structured compared to some of that. That stuff. Some of that is just like complete like car wreck. It just sounds so insane. Like, you know, like State Children or something. When that first came out, that's yeah. flexi. We were like, oh, my God, what is this? This is, it sounded like somebody like being tortured with like a drill. <laughs> you know? It was like – it was like was it some, some crazy nut in a corner hitting on a drum. It's like, you know? Uh, and now that thing goes for like $5,000 or something insane. No, it's like it's like we – you know, I always – we never well i i still have records i collect i collect records but I, I i love them for the music and you know i i spill like you know my southern comfort all over my strangler singles they all <laughs> stick together and stuff like that but i remember being in tom's house and having like stacks of uh slash magazines and he was using them for like he, he didn't have toilet paper so he used the slash magazines wow because you could buy because you could buy a slash for 75 cents yeah, you know and yeah. it was big and um now those go, for, you know, so oh, yeah. it's like, yeah, you could either, you know, just think about what you had and lost or, it's, you know, it's better to love than to never loved at all, I guess. You know, love and lost than to never believe. Absolutely. And well, like, so. and, and like a lot of reason these records are famous is because people that heard them when they <laughs> came out and were blown away by them and, and, and talked about them. So now people have to spend a lot of money to put themselves in that history. 
Yes, yes, to a point. But I mean, like, why is the child molester single a thousand dollars? It's not that great. No, no, and that's been a that's been a big money record for so long. I know. No, I saw that record going for you know years, fifteen years ago, and it's just like you got to be kidding me. You know? Yeah, I was going to say like, what you know, record collectors are pretentious assholes. Greatest record title ever, like or definitely since Past the Dust. I think I'm Bowie, which is on that too. I think on the cover. Where do those records come from, and like? And who is that attacking? Like, what were record collectors like, and what was record collecting culture like at that point? Well, it wasn't as insane as it is today, but it was getting there. It just started, you know. Yeah. Where people, you know, Tom was was like that. He, you know, like I think on that record, you can see the first fix single somewhere mm-hmm. on there. Mm-hmm. I think that's up there, and so that's a perfect example. You know, the fix toured they came down and played like the western front in san francisco from detroit or ann arbor wherever they're from and they came over like straight across like the dakotas and montana and spokane and then down to uh you know they actually were going to play in portland and we went to the show and waited it's like me and tom were like the only people there it was a bar this horrible biker bar and we went there and waited and waited. Finally, it got to be like 10 o'clock at night. And people are like, now nah, they're not going to show up. So, I mean, like Tom, Tom found out their tour schedule, where they were going, and wrote to all the the venues, these bars, these horrible little bars, like in Montana and Spokane, and said, hey, I understood, understand this band was going to play there, and they sent you a promo pack. Do you mind? I'll give you 20 bucks for it. And the people are like, yeah, no problem. So Tom would go and he collected like all these fixed singles and their promo packs from the, I mean, to do that at that time, yeah, when that record came out, that's pretty pretentious, you know? So he kind of <laughs> started, he pretty kind of, he kind of foresaw the, what was going to be happening, you know, with this insanity, which is, you know, pulling your teeth to get records. Yeah. Well, especially like that, that you know, you mentioned that record and that's, you know, the, that's like the holy grail for, for hardcore record collectors and like to have that foresight as it's coming out. Like you guys were at that show. Like, was it that single was just that hard to get at that point? Or is it just because you think this band, or I guess he thought this band was that fucking amazing, which they are, but like, like, right. yeah, like that's a lot of money to pay for a record at that point, let alone of a, you know, a band that's virtually unknown. Yeah. It was, I think it was, he knew they only printed a couple hundred of them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And plus the single was great. The single was like one of our favorites. It still is, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, all those records, all those, those records on that, that, re- you know, you can see that was, you know, that was like a snapshot of, of just our room our you know, that's our practice house. Yeah. And those were the records we listened to. And there's like a, Touch and Go magazine laying there, and you know, empty bottles of Old English Eight Hundred. And, and I, well, I think the thing that's so cool about it too is it's like you know talking to you and finding out about your like proto-industrial kind of phase. It's like there's records on there that don't necessarily make sense for you know the quote you know the meat and potatoes kind of hardcore record collector to be into. Like there's like kind of some deep cut stuff on there, and it's like to this day. That's still like a checklist. If you're a record collector, that's a checklist. If you want to be a, if you're a collector of, of punk music, like that's, 
you know, you, you get all those, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, Tom, I mean, Tom liked a lot of, like I said, he was into, you know, music before, you know, he liked Peter Green and he liked Paul Kossoff and he liked, you know, being a guitar player. He liked all of those, a lot of, you know, different stuff. He loved Mott the Hoople and um, he just liked, there's all sorts of stuff. And uh, the only thing he really didn't honestly like is when I kind of started listening to the Smiths. <laughs> I tried to get... I tried to get him into the Smiths, and he just couldn't couldn't see, wrap his head around that one. That was like a total total <laughs> a head scratcher to him. He never never figured that one out. He's like, I tried tried for years. They're a love and hate band. You either love them or you hate them, I guess. Because uh, you know, but that's funny that that would be the one. That's like yeah, the- but being a guitar player, being a guitar player. I mean, Johnny Marr was a great guitar player. You know. Yeah, yeah, but it's like. But I guess it's like a different guitar approach. Like maybe that's it. It comes down to that guitar. Yeah. He was a downstroke guy. Tom was definitely all that. That's another reason it sounds so heavy is he never, a lot of people play up and down and Johnny Ramone always played straight down. Greg Ginn always played straight down. Tom always played straight, you know, just like downstroke all the way. Yeah. And it's heavy. It sounds, sounds heavy. Uh, like another, when I got uh, Discontent played for me for the first time, it was played for me and presented to me by this guy, Simon Harvey in Toronto. And he was like, this was uh, Poison Idea's response to hearing Japanese hardcore. Like this was them showing that they could do something even more ferocious than the most ferocious thing. Is that true or is that just record collector uh, hyperbole? Uh, you know what? It was, that song was a song written in just like a rage about the state of the, what was going on at the time. There was like, I mean, there was a big rise with these like skinheads and stuff. And, um, it was, we, we stopped playing for like nine months because we just, we just, they would just show up our shows and, and ruin them. And, uh, you know, we would just tell them straight, we'd fight them. We would get in fights with them and that's what they liked. So it's kind of like, you know, some masochist, like kicking him in the nuts. And he's like, thank you. Can I have another? And so uh, we're just like, we're, we're just going to stop playing. We're yeah. just going to stop playing. And if we stopped playing. We wrote this song because we were so fucking pissed off at these people. And that was that song is just 100 percent rage. That is that's ch- our, us channeling our anger. That's got to be, you know, if so, if you're, you're going to give someone a perfect hardcore song, like a, especially a perfect anti-fascist hardcore song and you talked about how that at the time rang true like those lyrics that song rings so true like that talk about something timeless in a way that not even the wipers could obtain wow that's a compliment you know unfortunately (laughs) too i wish i wish that song was something where you could listen to it now and be like oh it was such a different time you wouldn't understand what these lyrics are about now yeah right it's it's more you know relevant now than ever yeah absolutely um, you, you, we talked about Gizem, uh, or I've talked about Gizem. When did you first hear them? Cause like that, once again, that you guys are my introduction to them. Um, well, I remember what punk house I heard them at. It wasn't at Tom's. It was this other punk house. And I remember the timeline. It must've been before, geez, when that record first came out, whenever that came out, because it was like, what, 86, 87, something like that? 86. Uh, uh, uh detestation or detestation. Yeah, I think, 83, you know, 83. 
Oh wow! Well, I don't think it was that. Must maybe it might have been '84 because I remember what guitar Tom. That's funny. I remember what guitar people are playing, and then by a timeline, <laughs> and what punk house I heard it from, and where that was, you know, when that got torn down the next year. <laughs> um, so yeah, I remember. Um, I think Puss had turned us on to that, mm-hmm. and and I we heard it, and everybody loved it. I honestly, when I first heard it, I didn't like it. I thought it was too heavy metal. Yeah, that's when I was kind of a, a kind of a purist. I just like you know, germs or whatever. <laughs> Always go back to the germs. Always my staple. Um, I'm like Darby Crash would never listen to this, you know. <laughs> but uh, oh, that's an yeah, amazing I, thing to think about, though. What what would be what would of Darby Crash's take that on Sakevi? But anyway, go on. Sorry. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know. He liked. I mean, he liked Mick Ronson. He yeah. probably would dig. You know, he, they looked pretty glam. That's true. You know, that's maybe. Maybe that's kind of why I didn't like him. Yeah. Um, I just, I, yeah, I was, I didn't, and it took me long, it took me like a year or two of listening all the time. And, and I was just like, ah, then finally I, I got into it. And I was like, yeah, this is good. And then, and then, you know what, when Sakevi came back and did his experimental stuff, then I dug him. Then I thought they were really cool. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really, cool. I, I really like it. I actually like that stuff a lot more than the, than the punk stuff. Oh, really? His, his, yeah, that's, that's insane. That stuff's heavy. That's really cool. And um, that's what we played. Poison Idea went to Japan, and we um, played with Sakebi's whatever they were called. I, at that time, I forgot what they were called. I think it, he had his name in it, whatever it was called. Sakebi and JoJo, was that the – no, that was like his earlier thing. Yeah, it wasn't that. It was after after Randy passed away. Okay. And uh, it was – but it was when, you know, Gizm was still playing – as a, you know, whatever with the pickup guys, and uh, but Sock Heavy was into his industrial stuff, his crazy samples and that noise and the, you know the Memory Man or whatever, and uh, so they played with us with Poison Idea, and um, we I wanted to, we wanted to go backstage and meet Sock Heavy, and and he's kind of like this, you know, you had to like get a written permission and stuff, <laughs> yeah. and wait in line and all this shit, and so. So finally, this guy comes in our room and he's like, "You can go in and see Sakievi now." So we all go in there and give him respect. And I, you know, I almost wanted to do a Charles Manson. I almost wanted to get down and kiss his feet and do a little dance around the room and like blow his mind. But I didn't know if he'd like appreciate that. I didn't know if he would like, was. I know he digs Charles Manson, but I didn't know just how far he dig him. You know, I yeah. didn't know if he would like really, really get into like really respect it and go, "Ah, I, I'm grooving on the vibe." Yes, I understand. <laughs> I don't know if he would. So, so we just gave him respect. We said, you know, thank you're a fucking influence. I think whatever you do is really cool. A couple guys in my band didn't even know who he was at that time, but um, <clears throat> we left. And the guy who was our interpreter, our interpreter in Japan, this guy brought from Seattle, he got drunk, and he started thinking. He's like, he's like, ah, he's like that guy. He's like, he used to be great. He used to be now. He's you know. So he goes back there, goes back into the room, and he starts rapping to Sakevi in Japan. He's like, he's like, you used to be so violent, you used to be so great. Now you are. Look at you now. Look what you're doing now. And Sakevi's just sitting there with his people around and watching, and and he just stood up and pow and hit the guy. First he hit him one time and split his face open, and then just started bowling him, just started like Tyson him, pump, 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 and hit the guy maybe four times and just fucked him up. But the cool, not the cool thing, the weird thing was the guy had to go back and apologize. They had Damn. to, they carried the guy out in a ball 
And after they straightened him out and popped his shoulder back into place and all this shit, they had to pick the guy up and march him back in there. And he had to like bow and fucking apologize to suck having for his apology to his, you know, get his, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry wow. that I did that. <laughs> wow. That is, <laughs> that's like, <clears throat> you hear so many stories where, you know, it just, it sort of diminishes the, the infamy and the legend, but that is one of those stories that truly adds to it. Truly lives yeah. up to the expectation that you would have of what would happen if someone stepped out of the line like that. Well, you know, to any, you can't poke a bear. You can't just go up and start saying, you know, to any, I can't do that to a guy on a bus. Go, you know, yeah. I saw you five years ago and you really look how fat you are now. You look horrible. You know? <laughs> You're going to get punched no matter who you are. You know? <sighs> so who else did you guys play with on that, on that tour over in Japan? Um, we played a lot of bands. It was, it was a, I think we toured pretty much with like forward. We okay. did a, yeah. you know, we, we played forward the whole tour and, and those guys are amazing, you know? And then, and then we got to meet, you know, all the, didn't meet a lot of old, old bands. I, um, was it, fuck. I think we played in a club that was, uh, owned by one of the guys in Cobra. Oh, sick. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it's just like like you said, you've been you've been there a bunch of times, and you know what those record stores are like, and the yeah. clubs are like. So yeah, it was a completely it was a completely you know different world. It, exactly, and like this summer, I was over there for doing this wrestling TV show. Uh, so I was over there for like a month, and it was just like all my all my punk rock Japanese fantasies came true. Like got to see all the bands I wanted to see, got to look go record shopping. Spent way too much money. Spent my kids' college fund on records. I'm sure, but it was a uh, an amazing experience. Definitely. Are was, they are those records really expensive? Are those are those are they the people that that set the prices that everyone goes crazy for? Like you know, it's it's weird. Like I when we were over there when I this summer, like I saw friends of mine that were coming over from Brazil and and friends that were coming over from like Mexico City and in Malaysia, and they were coming over to buy records to sell at their record stores. Because the prices in Japan oh. are are better, are so much better for for ninety percent of the stuff, but it's still fucking expensive. Like it's nothing is, yeah. you know, like you know, like they had the Zao record, which you know is is something that I'd never seen. Like, well, I had seen a copy when I was a kid, but I haven't seen a copy in a long ass time. And so to see one there for sale, you know, but it's four hundred dollars, and then you're like, well, on Discogs it's like seven hundred dollars. So I guess I'm getting a deal. But oh I, wow! But like, I went to a sale where I had to line up, and it's a sale in the sense that stuff was going to be for sale. But I had to line up at six a.m. to get in, or seven a.m. Sorry, and they let us in at eleven a.m. And it was like it was like a Black Friday sale, but it was just only rare Japanese punk records. Wow, that's incredible! It was awesome. Um, so yeah, back to you know kind of the journey that you're on at this point. What was the first tour you guys did? Well, I mean, we would play Seattle a lot. We played Seattle a lot back in the old days. We play Eugene a lot. Um, <clears throat> we would book California, but we'd never, you know, <laughs> no one had a driver's license. No one could drive. Um, the so first how, time. So how would you what? get up to, sorry. Yeah. So how would you get up to the Seattle shows and the Eugene shows then? Oh, like friends and cars, okay. you yeah. know, yeah, friends and cars and stuff. But 
I think one of somebody had a van. One of our another band had a van, and we did make it down to San Francisco, and then we started going to like L.A., San Francisco, and that was in the '80s. You know, mid '80s when like uh, like the farm was still going on in mm-hmm. San Francisco, and like um, we would go down there and play like Fenders or wherever, and uh, and then um, the first East Coast thing was right before Feel the Darkness, and that was. We, you know, kind of got responsible, parlayed our money, and um, did a big tour all the way down to uh, like Boston or wherever. And we played, and that was great. That was really great because there was still enough, you know, old school people around in every city. You know, we like Indianapolis, we'd play with Sloppy Seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, like Connecticut, play with Seizure. And in Boston, we, you know, like the, the negative FX guys were there. And, um, you know, like, all, SSD had already broken up, but that was still around. You know, New York, there was still all the, you know, the old. Well, that that scene never really went away. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But um, you know, it was great to just go through all those places. You know, like being in Michigan, and um, I think Michael Thompson's wife came out. That's fucking awesome. At, yeah, one show, and so we were just, you know, just. Whoever you know, Crucifix, um, you know these bands. Those bands. Every city, every city had a great scene with, you know, everything. I mean, like Cleveland's always been just insane with just you know from from the seventies, yeah. You know, and four, and so just going to these cities and just catching the vibe of all of these, you know, the bands, and and so so going through there and playing in the eighties and playing with these bands, you know, wrecking crew or whoever, and, uh, you know, staying at their houses and stuff was, was great. It was great seeing all these. Who'd you guys play with in Cleveland? <laughs> just, if you remember just randomly, I've, oh yeah. Cause Cleveland's a city that I'm, you know, once again, another place that's got an unbelievable, as you say, punk rock history. Yeah. Cleveland, I can't really remember that, that yeah, okay. show. Did, is that the tour um, you came up to Toronto and played with flight camp or is that another tour? That was the tour. That was the tour. And then we played with uh, Goofs, too. Or, or Four and a Half Reasons for Retroactive Abortion. Oh, really? That, yeah. That was, wasn't was Steve Goof in that band? Yeah, I think he was. That, but that's like a side project, right? Yeah. That's fucking, oh, yeah, that's that crazy. <laughs> at the Sibony, or where was that? Sibony. Venue? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yep. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know you played the two shows. I thought it was just that one show. Or did they play that one show too? They must have played that because I think we only played Toronto. Okay. Bounce, yeah. When, when but, you're, um, yeah, that was a... No, go ahead. No, sorry. When you're, so when you're doing that, um, those West Coast tours, I guess that's when you got hooked up with the Alchemy Records, right? Yeah, so from playing to, Cal- from playing to San Francisco. And when you're playing, like, were you playing with, like, Neurosis and the Melvins? Because the Melvins had moved down by that point, or were they still up? Um, they, they were still up because we would play with them up in, like, Seattle. Okay. We played with them in Seattle. That was the first time I ever met um, Kirk Homemade was they, he did the mur- mural on the side of their band, the big kiss thing. Yeah. Yeah, like a rock and roll over thing, and I was, you know, <laughs> the record, the record that drove me to punk. And, uh. <laughs> I, I didn't say nothing. I didn't say nothing to the Melvins about it, but I was like, "Oh wow, that's really cool," you know. And they were going, "Yeah, this kid right here did it," and it was Kurt. I was like, "That's beautiful. That's really, really nice." 
And I started having like a Ludovico techniques. I started having like flashbacks of kiss and started vomiting. And, <laughs> but, uh, no, it was, yeah. So, so yeah, I think Cl- clown alley was because remember, uh, Lori broke up, you know, started playing in the Melvins. What's mm-hmm. the Melvins moved to? Yeah. So clown alley was still playing in San Francisco. Okay. Um, so, so that. And like, dude, there's like, honestly, I could talk to you forever and I, I got to let you go because you got to live your life. Um, uh, but can we do a part two at some point in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for coming on the show and yeah, let's do this part two sometime down the road. That sounds great. Thank you for having me on, Davey. This has been amazing, man. Thank you, Jerry, for coming on the show and you can hear right there. Jerry said he's going to be back for a part two, and then hopefully it'll be a little more calm and collected, and because I was pretty excited. I don't know if that came through, but I was pretty excited to get to do that interview. And then we'll have three, four, five, six, seven, and all that fun stuff. Also, Jerry mentioned these packages that he sends people, and he, sure enough, sent me an incredible package overloaded with incredible Poison Idea stuff, including all the releases that American Leather Records has put out thus far, the Redux of American Leather Records, a great label. They've got some fantastic releases. You can find that over at AmericanLeatherRecords.BigCartel.com, including the amazing documentary Legacy of Dysfunction. There's a Poison Idea movie now. I guess there's Mating Walruses too, but there's another Poison Idea that's a documentary. Pick this up. It's It's an incredible look at one of the most important bands of all time. And I said off the top... And I'm probably going to stand by this for forever. Uh, my favorite punk band of all time. My favorite hardcore band of all time. You know, this is the band. You know, like they, I challenge you to go through their discography and find like a bad record. Some you might like more than others, but you can't find a bad record. You know, how many bands can you say that about? Ramones, Teenage Head. Like I'm saying bad, like Teenage Head. I know there are some that are close to that point, but they never cross over. That's that's it. There's very few, very few bands on that list in the punk world. There might be some in, in other worlds that I have no idea about, like every other world, because, because I'm pretty narrow in my taste in music. Speaking of taste in music, one band that I love that doesn't sound like a lot of the bands that I love is No Joy, a band from Montreal that coincidentally used to feature my cousin on drums no longer, but that is not the point. What is the point? is next week on the show, Jasmine White Gluz is going to be on the show. She is, without a doubt, one of the coolest. I've known her since she was back in Bad Flirt for years. Well over 10 years I've known her. And now she plays in this incredible band, No Joy. She's been doing collaborations with Sonic Boom lately. And we get in all of it. All of it. Next week on the show. And she's the first sibling to ever be on Turned Out of Punk. We've had... My brother refuses to let me air the episode with him in it, so I've had yet to have a sibling on the show until Jasmine. But that is next week on Turn It a Punk. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do it. Pick up some stuff on American Leather Records. Find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. Subscribe to this podcast. Write a review. And uh, have a good week. Thank you, everyone. I love you. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.